Welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 90, recorded on January 27th, 2019. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. It's good to be connected with you and on a particularly busy week for you. Yeah, we launched a new show this week, hosted by me and Jason Evangelo, called Choose Linux. Congratulations, Joe and Jason. This show has already received a ton of great feedback. And I think listener Jacob summed it up beautifully. He said, it isn't just a new show. It's a fresh take on a great subject. And you, mixed with Jason, is an excellent pairing because Jason's coming into this fresh. He recently switched to Linux about six months ago. And of course, you've been using Linux for more than a decade. You're sort of set in your ways. So it's it's optimist versus, we'll, we'll say, pragmatist. (laughs) (laughs) That's one way to put it, yeah. But it's really blended well. It's not confrontational. And for somebody like me who's been using Linux for a really long time, it's actually really beneficial to hear these fresh perspectives, especially since Linux has changed so much since I joined. So I really enjoyed episode one. Choose Linux.show if you guys want to check it out. And congratulations, Joe. Yeah, thanks. It was a lot of fun that first episode and we'll be doing it every two weeks. So yeah, choose Linux.show. Check it out. Well, and speaking of Jason Evangelo, he starts off the news this week with a story about Steam for Linux now letting you play other Windows games that are outside of Steam. So wrap your head around this for a moment. You grab a game from GOG.com, you can now execute it using Steam to play the game with Proton. If you're new to the show, that sentence probably doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Yeah, I suppose we should back up and explain that Proton is this compatibility tool that Valve paid to have developed that's based on Wine that allows you to play Windows versions of Steam games. Now, being able to play games that are not coming from Steam, that seems very strange to me that they would enable this. It's good. It's excellent for gamers who want to play Windows games that aren't available natively on Linux, but it just seems like a very strange play from Valve to allow this to happen. Yeah, it is a bit unexpected, isn't it? Maybe, and after all, it's their investment to into Proton, and uh, so it could be their secret sauce that only they make user-friendly. But it was possible for on the command line. You just kind of had to go dig around. I even linked to a tutorial weeks ago in Linux Unplugged that would let you run games and office apps and things like that using Proton. So it wasn't a momentous amount of work. It is an indication, I think, that they're trying to make an overall investment in Linux as a gaming platform. And at the end of the day, it means you're still opening up Steam and you're still in that Steam ecosystem. Yeah, that is true. And it'd be the same with SteamOS if that ever makes a comeback. So I can see why they've done it from that point of view. But this really is just the perfect time to get into Linux. You can see why people like Jason have got this enthusiasm. There just seem to be fewer and fewer barriers now to get into Linux. And it goes back to over a year ago when you were talking about the difference between the pragmatists and the idealists. This is really pragmatic stuff. This is not free software we're talking about here. But people who are getting into Linux for the first time probably don't really care about that. And I'd prefer people to be using Linux and proprietary software on top of that than to be running a completely proprietary stack in Windows or Mac OS. Oh, absolutely. And if you think about it, it is open source software that is enabling this. Proton and Wine, that's all open source. And Vulkan is a standard an open standard. So it it, it might be commercial games that are running on top of this stack, but the stack itself is open source. And I know that when I switched to Linux, the very first applications I needed to run 
were Microsoft Office, like Outlook and Word and Excel. So that way I could keep up with the other people in the office. And it wasn't until later that I started to appreciate that it was all free software underneath that was making it possible for me to do that. And later on, when I did make that connection, I had an enormous amount of appreciation and respect for that free software because I understood what they were enabling. So at least in my case, uh, that kind of backwards way into the free software world ended up giving me a really deep appreciation for free software once it all clicked. Yeah, hopefully that'll be the case for people like Jason. And with the new Wine 4.0 release, it's going to be even easier to run Windows applications. Wine is really moving now. 4.0, it's been about a year of development, 6,000 individual changes, including Vulkan support, Direct3D12 support, official full-fledged game controller support, and... For Android users that are attempting to use Wine, there's now high DPI support. And that's just that's just really skimming the surface. We have the full release notes linked in the show notes. Yeah, looking through those notes, it seemed to be a lot of graphical stuff and a lot of gaming-related development there, which isn't a huge surprise, really, given that that is one of the primary uses of it these days. Well, and I think we're seeing some of those Proton fixes and upstream code getting integrated back into mainline wine. Like this Falcon support, I'm sure, is in part at least due to the uh, work on Proton. And that's, again, just the beauty of free software. Well, speaking of Windows and Microsoft, there was a story that came out of a fairly unlikely source this week that surprised a lot of us. If this story pans out, this could be one of the biggest stories in Microsoft's history. And it's linked because someone inside the company wanted to update their social profile <laughs> on LinkedIn. It's just, I love 2019 already. And the profile in question was a security program manager that was tasked with, quote, the security of Windows Core OS from malicious actors and code. All right, so stop right there. We haven't seen any official announcements of any actually of any capacity, unofficial or official or teases from Microsoft that use the word and branding Windows Core OS. The core branding has been what Microsoft has used as they've moved their projects to open source, .NET Core, PowerShell Core. So we have seen that branding used before, but we've never seen Windows Core. Now, moving on from that, that same security program manager then said in his profile update to, quote, improve the security posture of Windows open source components through initiatives that investigate vulnerabilities found and establish a process for remediation. So if you connect the dots between the two, you start to have reason to suspect that Windows Core OS will rely on some open source components, which brings us to this rumor that there could be some kind of open source Windows Core. Now, maybe that would be a new project in the case of the other core projects, or maybe it would be a bundling of existing components. That much isn't clear, but it does seem like maybe something is in the works here, and it lines up with rumors that have been circulating for about two years or so. Well, I know it's a bit late in the year to be doing predictions, but I can almost guarantee that it's not going to be called Windows Core OS because Red Hat would have some serious words with them if they used the Core OS branding. <laughs> so I think just Windows Core probably. Hmm. Yeah, maybe, yeah. That, that's I hadn't thought of that. I, that is a good point. And what would this be? Would this be the basis of a future version of Windows? Would this be the basis of... Um, Windows Server and Windows Desktop for the next release? Like, There's a lot of questions you have with that. And what license would they use? MIT, Apache, some weird Microsoft license? Definitely not GPL. No, I would say the chances of copyleft are very slim. 
I think almost certainly some sort of permissive license because there's going to be huge chunks of proprietary code in there as well. Unless they do come out and completely surprise us and have a completely open source version of Windows and then just try and sell services on top of that, you never know. Right. And then there's the whole moral quandary. For people that use open source software and free software for the moral reasons, what happens when Windows starts to get based on an open core? Maybe it's just as open to say as a BSD. And what do you what do you do in that scenario if you're using open source software for moral reasons? That's a question I posed our virtual lug in Linux Unplugged on episode 285. I asked them, I said, what would you do? And, and we have Brent, who's a, who's a professional photographer. He uses Linux to do photography. And I said, if you could run an open source Windows desktop and then run proprietary Adobe applications on top of that, would that be tempting? And I want to turn that around and ask that to you, Joe. Just theoretically, if you could just say this is 10 years down the road, you could install an open source Windows desktop where everything that shipped off of the ISO image is open source, but then you could install commercial Adobe applications. Would that be a tempting desktop to you? Well, I'd have to try it out. And I don't think that it would be necessarily something that I wouldn't use just because it was Microsoft. If it was properly open source, then obviously people would be all over it looking for backdoors and problems with it because it just be a great scoop to find that stuff. So I would trust it if it was properly open source. And then I'd just assess it on its merits, compare it with Ubuntu and Arch and you know the various other Linux distros. And if there was good software support for it, then I would consider switching to it, definitely. Yeah, I think I'm somewhere in between there. I, I think I am. Like I, I think I definitely have to give it a go and try it and see what they'd come up with. But they'd also have to have iterated the UI quite a bit for me to like it. Um, I know it works great for some people, but for me personally, it reminds me of my days doing IT support. And I find it to be a little old school and cumbersome and like a mix of different UI styles and resolutions. And I just don't like it. So it would also need some iteration there. <laughs> you know what would be great is the Plasma desktop. <laughs> and if I could have everything GPL'd, and maybe if I could have Bash for the terminal prompt, uh, then I'm good to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all speculation. And I think the chances are that this is much more likely to be sort of IoT stuff because there's too much legacy with the Windows desktop and the NT kernel. There's yeah. so much software. You can run versions of Photoshop or just all sorts of software from 10 plus years ago, and it works fine on Windows 10. Right. And to just throw all of that away seems very unlikely, unless they had some sort of Wine-like compatibility layer, which is not beyond the realms of possibility, given that they're doing this Windows on ARM thing, which uses translation layers and stuff. So who knows? You know, you could also see this going the uh, iOS route, where they sort of do a reset with Windows Core. And just like you said, it, it focuses on IoT and ARM-type devices at first. And then as the operating system becomes more feature-rich and ARM processors get faster, it could eventually become the desktop component as well. Like It just, it, it just assumes more roles and responsibilities, and you, the core remains the same, and, and you build the user land on top of that, sort of like it works in Linux, actually. And I could definitely see it going that direction if the industry overall starts switching to ARM processors for laptops and desktops. They, you could see them just taking this OS and growing it over time, and not necessarily a full reboot of the Windows code, but a pretty big reset, uh, maybe a little bit of a house cleaning. It could be long-term, the future Windows, 
or it could just be absolutely nothing. And if it is the future, then them switching over to Blink as the base of Edge means that pretty much all the applications we're going to get will be Electron. So it'll be pretty much the same as Linux. Oh, man. That stings in like five different ways. Um, <laughs> but let's bring it back to the present. Stop talking about the future. And the present is running Ubuntu VMs on Windows if you want a decent command line experience. Yes, of course, there is the Windows subsystem for Linux. But now, my friends, there's something even a little more powerful, and it's being brought to you by Canonical's Multipass. Yeah, there's now a third way to run Ubuntu on Windows 10, which is quite strange. And Multipass is kind of somewhere in between the subsystem for Linux, which is not really Linux because there's no Linux kernel, but it's all command line, or Hyper-V, which is VMs with a GUI, whereas Multipass uses Hyper-V, but it's all command line based, so it's much easier to script, but it does have the full kernel, including snaps and things. Right, Multipass is using Hyper-V, so it's a whole proper VM, but it's designed around being managed from the command line, and you could script it with PowerShell even if you wanted to. So you really, isn't it kind of weird? Like, Windows 10, it, you got three different ways now to enjoy your Ubuntu. <laughs> so the subsystem for Linux is fine unless you need things that the Linux kernel exposes. That's where, where virtualization comes in. And then it's like, well, what kind of virtualization do you need? Are you running GUI applications? Then you probably want to run this optimized version of Hyper-V that's in the store that Canonical worked with Microsoft to, to integrate and make the mouse work nice and all that kind of stuff. But if you want to emulate at the command line to do server-side development and things like that, well, that's where Multipass comes in. You're doing some cloud-based development with some CI and CD, that's where Multipass comes in. And it's just strange that there are three now different ways to use Ubuntu, not to mention you could install Ubuntu on the PC, so there's there's really four. The actual tell here is that there must be a market for it, because it's not like Microsoft and Canonical are just going to jointly decide to waste time doing this. Like they're not like, hey, how, hey, hey, Mark, how could we burn a few hours? Like that's not what's going on here, right? They they must be seeing customer demand and saying, okay, well, let's invest in this area. Which means that not only is there a market for the subsystem um, on Windows, which we weren't even totally sure of at the time, but now looking at it, it seems obvious. But there's a market for multiple types of virtualization of Ubuntu on Windows. There obviously is. Uh, don't forget, you can also have um, VMware or VirtualBox as well, so you've just got almost unlimited options now. Unless you're on Windows S, then you don't get any of this. You can go screw yourself. <laughs> yeah. you got to love how they differentiate the products with these fake registry entries and whatnot. <laughs> yeah, well, I've heard it's pretty easy to hack that if you know what you're doing. Of course, Multipass was available already on Linux and even macOS, so it's almost a bit late to the party with Windows, but... It must have been the demand there. And it's just more pragmatism from Canonical. They just seem to be getting closer and closer to Microsoft and more and more ties there and making my predictions come even closer to becoming true, I think. <laughs> of course, that's where you go. Of course. <laughs> you know, it is that pragmatism, though. This is, this is the result of that refocusing is work where you've got leverage. If you've got a large market doing development for cloud servers running Ubuntu on Windows, you go to where that market's at. The same thing is happening with Ubuntu Core, which has seen a pretty big update. Ubuntu Core 18 has been released, and like the name implies, it's based on Ubuntu 18.04 LTS. But the interesting tell in this press release by Canonical is how much they've worked in hand with Dell to develop this. Yeah, this was actually kind of soft released back in December, 
it was released for testing as stable, but now they're making a big song and dance about it as being the proper release announcement, I suppose. Right. And it might be that Dell just got to certifying Ubuntu Core for all of their Edge gateway platforms. So now is the chance to announce it now that that milestone has been reached? Yeah, that seems pretty likely. But they've also said that it's going to be supported for 10 years, asterisk, if you're willing to pay. Right. So it's kind of in line with the standard 1804. This is another confirmation that we're going to see full 10-year support for 1804. Because if they're offering it here on the Ubuntu Core 18 release, which is based on 1804, well, the way they accomplish that is by maintaining 1804. So while we don't have specifics on how that program is going to work, and fair enough to Canonical, we've got a few years, so we don't need specifics yet. Uh, it looks like this is more confirmation. And the wording they use around it, I think, is choice. I, I want to read the quote from their press release. It says, Ubuntu Core 18 will receive 10 years low-cost security maintenance. <laughs> low-cost, Joe. <laughs> yeah, low-cost. I think it's a case of if you have to ask, then uh, you know you can't afford it. Yeah. And then there was a poll quote in here they have from Dell's vice president of uh, global IoT and embedded sales. And it goes, we see enormous interest in customers wanting to take advantage of the built-in app store infrastructure to securely maintain and deliver new functionality at the edge. So the, one of the things that really makes the Ubuntu core product stand out is it's a very super minimal Ubuntu install. And then the application and server functionality is mostly provided via snaps. So if you're an IoT vendor, you bundle your applications that are your secret sauce or your special offering in a snap. You publish that, and then you update these devices via snap packages. So you get the containment, you get the publishing features of the snap store. But it does mean you're using canonical snap store to manage your IoT device applications, as far as I know, because there is no open source self-hosted version of the Snap Store. So that's the kind of catch to this, I think. But if you're comfortable as a publisher publishing through Canonical's Snap Store, you're good to go. And I would think in most cases, commercial vendors are just fine doing that. They prefer having a commercial contract with a business in place, I would imagine. Well, yeah, that's the whole point of this. It's a completely managed solution for IoT and edge devices that you can just stick them out in the wild and they'll self-update with these snaps. And if anything goes wrong, they've got rollback functionality that automatically happens. And so it's just set it and forget it almost. Right. And what jumped out at me was that they're only using strictly confined snaps here. So it's not like the desktop where you've got classic confinement, which is just no confinement. This is all about security. This is a really good package. They've got they've got more going on here than I think any other Linux vendor does because you've got the ubiquity of Ubuntu. So you have a huge development community that's already writing software for that platform. It's the most widely deployed Linux in the world, as far as I know. Um, I know that there's a lot of Red Hat installs, but when you uh, when you start adding up containers and VPSs, I don't think anybody beats Ubuntu. Uh, you get support from Canonical for the release. You get them managing the store. You get the convenience of shipping software in Snap. So imagine your Backblaze, for example, and you want to offer reliable backup appliances. You could base it on Ubuntu Core 18. You could deliver the, the Backblaze applications via a Snap that you can continuously update. And then you could snap up that same Backblaze backup client for all of the other appliances in the world based on Ubuntu and Ubuntu desktops. If you want, you can get a big, fat support contract with Canonical. And you get 10 years of OS support. 
And it's from how you publish the software to the developer bits to how you ship it is all laid out for you. It's a pretty compelling package. And the alternative is that you have every single vendor rolling their own system. Your TP-Links, your Wemo plugs, your iHome systems, they're all rolling their own Linux with their own application delivery system, with their own package management system complete. Their own, they're just reinventing almost the entire distribution for every single one of these IoT devices. And it, it's not their core competency. I just, it's, it's one of these things where I wish I could take these IoT vendors and shake them and say, look at this, you know? Yeah, if only. It really does go to show that Shotworth has really focused now on profitability. This is just a further proof of it, as far as I can see. He's kind of stopped messing around with his own custom desktop, the phones, convergence, and all of that stuff. He's using GNOME upstream with some tweaks, to be fair, on the desktop, but he's made that job considerably easier, and there's still money being made from that, but the focus has really been on snaps for a long time, and this is why. You can just see that this is potentially a huge growth market for them, and it feels like the other Linux vendors are somewhat missing the boat here, whereas Canonical have really been putting the work in and getting the underpinnings right for the last couple of years. And now, as more and more and more of these IoT devices and edge devices get made, and these companies realize that a solution like this actually does make sense for them to pay money for, then it starts to look very good for Canonical in the kind of medium term. Well, speaking of upstream for Ubuntu, Debian was in the news in the last week for a flaw in apt. And as quickly as the flaw got attention, a fix has been released. Yeah, I thought this was worth mentioning because Debian reacted very quickly here with the fix. But not only that, they also re-rolled the images, which is quite an unusual step for a security fix. It goes to show how important this was and how critical a security hole we were facing here. And so they respawned all of the images with just that one fix. I really liked Wes's breakdown in Linux Unplugged 285, linuxunplugged.com slash 285, because we also jumped into the HTTPS stuff a little bit too. Why why does Debian use HTTP and all of that? Uh, and Wes is so good at just deep diving into some of these particular topics. I mean, that's why he's on TechSnap, right? Yeah. That's what TechSnap's all about. But So I just basically said, hey, Wes, go TechSnap on this for me. <laughs> And it was good. So, uh, I mean, now now to see a fix out there, um, well, I, I just I, I have a lot of appreciation for Debian, and I do wonder if the uh, if the HTTPS thing doesn't stick around, if that conversation doesn't continue now that this uh, fix is out there. Yeah, I've been reading about this, and I do see why they have chosen to go the non-HTTPS route. But I think that ultimately they're going to have to do that. They do have other mechanisms in place with GPG signing and everything, but why take the risk? Why not go belt and braces with it and at least have it as default? Maybe have the option there to turn it off if it's going to cause problems, but I think that ultimately that's probably the way they're going to go with it. Well, Joe, speaking of knowing the way things were going to go ultimately, who didn't see this one coming? It appears that uh, Google will be making adjustments to the Chromium project to make it harder to block ads. Yeah, there's been a big stink about this on the internet this week. And I think there's been quite a lot of clickbaity headlines and videos saying that 
it's Google definitely doing this, whereas in reality it's a proposal at this stage. It seems fairly likely that it will happen, but it may not, so I don't think we should be jumping to too many conclusions. And the long and the short of it is that the way plugins are handled in Chromium and therefore Chrome is going to be tightened up, and that means that ad blockers, less so with Adblock Plus, but much more so with uBlock Origin, they're just not going to work properly. And it's going to be very difficult for the devs of those projects to make those plugins actually block ads. And so obviously everyone's jumping to this conclusion of, well, Google's an ad company, and therefore they don't want to block ads. They did add a bit of ad blocking to Chrome fairly recently, but that's very selective blocking. But I don't necessarily believe that that is the motivation here. Maybe I'm being naive, but I genuinely think it is about making the browser more secure. And I think that you potentially got just different departments, and they're not even necessarily thinking about the advertising revenue and everything. I think it's maybe, maybe, maybe I'm being naive, but I think it is just them wanting to make the browser better. I think you got two issues going on here. Number one is the way the extensions worked before in brief is they could intercept network traffic and manage that network traffic before it was handed off to the Chrome render engine. That causes delay and obviously introduces security risks because not every Chrome extension is respecting of your privacy. And the flip side of that is that they can eliminate things from the network stream before it even hits the render engine. But that also means the render engine is waiting on these plugins to sift through the network traffic. The Google engineers are looking at this and they're saying to themselves, this is obviously insecure. Obviously, the way we need to do this is the render engine receives the network traffic first, and then it hands it off to a plugin. The catch is these plugins, when we hand them the traffic, they can only they can only have a list of 30,000 items they check for, and after that, we're going to cut them off because that takes too long. And of course, when you consider the web and advertising, the list is much, much longer than that. And then to kind of really drill it in, they said, and we're also not going to let you use this web URL hook that we had where you could update your list. You can't do that anymore either uh, because of privacy. But that they weren't so clear on. So you have that happening, and I, I completely agree with the engineers. It is, frankly, a horrible design to have the traffic be intercepted by the plugins first because you could have God knows what in your plugins that could be injecting ads, malware, you name it. Intercepting traffic goes on and on. Obviously, it, that's, that's clear. But that was a decision they made seven years ago. And that's not like they accidentally designed the system that way. They didn't just, oops, this is how it turned out. It was a clear engineering decision. And there are entire projects and companies now based around that engineering decision. And now Google is going back to the drawing board and saying, we're redoing the plumbing on this. And you've lost your tap. Yeah, but sometimes you make bad decisions and then come to regret them. And that's clearly what has happened here. And is it not fair enough for them to decide, well, actually, maybe we shouldn't be doing it like this? Yeah, I think it actually is. It absolutely is. And it, it's probably a step that they should take for security reasons. Um, <laughs> I, I feel like, though, I got to tell you, Joe, I am still not super thrilled about it because we have entered now a realm where so many downstream projects are based on Blink. And if they make a massive change in Blink, it changes so many other projects. Opera, Vivaldi, Edge. 
I mean, it's like the ramifications now are at a whole, whole other level. And um, it seems awful damn convenient that they decided to engineer this one way when they needed as much market share as possible. So yeah, your crazy ad blocking plugins that fundamentally undermine our revenue model, they're fine. Like who didn't think this was going to change? Who didn't think one day if Google got enough market share, they were going to flip this lever the other direction and kick out the ad blockers? I, I, I've been expecting this for years since they launched the browser. I expected this change. And I guess I'm just, I'm a little disappointed and a little bummed out that it actually is coming to fruition. It's actually happening because it's just the beginning of Google applying the massive leverage they have now. Are you saying it's a bit like Amazon driving all of the bookstores out of business and then opening up their own? Yes, it's, it's, it's exactly like that. That's what's happening here. Um, and all of us that downloaded and installed Chrome, I'm one of them. I think we all knew deep down what we were, what we were enabling. Yeah. Well, I'm still looking at Firefox. I've got Chrome installed for the odd thing that needs it, but yeah, I gotta say you, you have one of the most level-headed takes on this story and you are a committed Firefox user. <laughs> yeah. Cause I don't, I don't really care. This <laughs> is the bottom line. Yeah. And as somebody who bounces between Firefox and Chrome on a daily basis, like I'm a I'm a dual browser. I'm actually a three browser guy. I, I always have a third browser on every platform. It's usually GNOME Web or you know Epiphany or, or something like that that I, I or Opera or Vivaldi. Like I've always got a third browser. Um, so I, I'm I'm kind of hedging my bets, but at, at the same time, I, I I actually think Google should make this change. Not only do we need to lie in the bed that we've made for ourselves. That's just we we ha- that's 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 the situation we have now. But also. This is a proper security change. The, the former TechSnap co-host in me can't help but notice that having plugins intercept web traffic is extremely bad. <laughs> and we should change that. <laughs> but as for having multiple browsers, you need to learn to use private Windows, man. You can at least have two Google accounts logged in or whatever yeah. if you have a, a private window open. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's because I used computers back before we had like multitasking and proper like protected memory and all of that. So... I over the many many decades now that I've been using PCs, I've I've just ingrained in myself that if something's really important, it has its own dedicated process. It has like something else can completely collapse, but that thing I'm working on, that process still lives. <laughs> and like I just I can't get out of that. Even though now web browsers take many gigs of RAM, I yeah. still operate like that. All right, well let's end with a bit more future speculation. And it seems that Google are very serious about bringing this to market in one shape or another. Have you noticed that the Fuchsia news has accelerated? Like, we're getting more and more stories about Fuchsia, especially when you consider that we first found out about this in 2016, and now we're getting stories, like, on a weekly basis. And what's developed this week is Google has hired a 14-year Apple veteran, engineer Bill Stevenson, who was rather well-known for being the go-to triage and diagnose person for application framework issues in macOS. He remained in the macOS organization for a long stint at Apple. He became the senior engineering program manager for four years. His responsibilities towards the end of his run was the PM and technical lead for AirPlay, Find My Mac, iCloud for Mac, AirDrop and Snow Leopard. He also worked on the most recent Mojave release, and he led teams responsible for the build and program management of Mojave, which is considered to be a fairly decent macOS release with all things considered. So he's somebody who's experienced with shipping large-scale operating systems and dealing with features that have a cloud tie-in. Yeah, he seems to be the perfect man for the job, essentially. 
And like so many things, uh, LinkedIn is a source of uh, news on this as well. In a post on LinkedIn, Stevenson specifically said he was joining Google to help bring a new operating system called Fuchsia to market. So that's the phase they're in now. Yeah, it remains to be seen exactly what it's going to be. It seems much more likely to be like a smart speaker or screen or something than a phone, but you never know. Yeah, I guess you don't. And something tells me you're going to find out sooner than later. Uh, And we'll let you know. So check back right here. And if you're not subscribed yet, go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And you can go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. And don't forget to check out the new show. Go to choose and you can get episode one there as well as subscribe to the feeds. And if it's not in your podcast player yet, it will be soon. It's populating in all the different areas, but you can subscribe directly by just putting choose slash RSS in your favorite podcatcher. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I am at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next week. See you later. Thank you.